you got to go zen for these intros, you know. Hello, you're listening to Don't Listen to This, podcast all about 1,001 albums to listen to before you die, where we take a look at Robert Dimery's 1,001 albums to listen to before you die. As I've just said, I'm your host, Ewan Gledo, and as ever, I'm joined by a wonderful guest, but this time we've got a returning guest, because my pool of guests is smaller and smaller by the day. <laughs> this podcast is listened to by about three people per week, but I am joined by the wonderful Nicolo Grasso. How are you doing, pal? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm so happy to be back here, uh, bringing my loud Italian voice back on the pod to talk about, sadly, no Italian music, but no a Italian singer music. that's close to my heart. Oh, really? Oh, well, have I got bad news for you? Um, uh, oh, what pain. have you been listening to recently beyond the, um, the album I've put forth towards you? I've been listening to a lot of Akira Yamaoka. The mm. Japanese composer made the soundtrack to the Silent Hill games, for instance. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Because I've, got, I've gotten back into playing the series um, just because I got my, my PSP. It's back on working. I was like, yeah, let's just play the original Silent Hill and Silent Hill Origins on it. And there's something about the industrial sounds that Yamaoka creates through these, uh, through these horror games that's very much inspired by Angelo Badalamenti who's worked on David Lynch films. I was like, man, the, the vibe is very similar and there's so many wonderful tracks in it. Um, it's, it's a big recommendation. If anyone's interested in checking him out and they haven't, um, it's great music Great music to vibe to, to like if you're, if you're writing or editing or doing whatever. It's very versatile. <laughs> what have you been listening to? What have I been listening to? I mean, well, you know, I woke up 30 minutes before we started this recording, so... As I was making my coffee, I thought I need to wake myself up. And I, I just recently bought, and by recently, I mean yesterday, bought um, the Electric Ladyland sessions from LCD Sound System. Ah. Um, I don't actually know if it's called Electric Ladyland. I'm just, I can't remember the name of it, to be honest, and I can't bother to look it up. I'm too tired. Hang on, I've actually got it open <laughs> in a new tab. That's how lazy we are. Electric Lady Sessions. Electric okay. Ladyland's Jimi Hendrix. But there's a couple tracks on that LCD Sound System album. They're just so lovely. They're brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. It's like a, a blind boarded on vinyl because ah. I don't know if you can tell. If, I've got a bit of a cold because I'm from <laughs> over. Just a little bit. Um, but went and bought it. Um, hadn't listened to it before, but I'm on. I'm, I'm in my LCD sound system phase at the moment. So apologies to everybody that has to put up with me saying, "Oh, it's like dance yourself clean." You know, it's like that one song <laughs> from This Is Happening. Um, to be fair though, I, I it, it's been good. It's been good fun listening to them. Um, because I was kind of lukewarm on them, and then I, I, as it went on, I, I grew more taste, and you get <laughs> into more music, and it's just good. There's growth. <laughs> there is growth, unlike for the album we're talking about today, which I've listened to before, Whoa. and will listen to again, and I'm left rather empty by, but it's the Joan Byers album, the debut self-titled track from 1960. Um, released by... I wish I hadn't said released by, because then I'd remember that I didn't know the record label, which is why I'm buying <laughs> time now. It was released by Vanguard. Um, relatively small record label at the time. Uh, obviously kind of exploded when they started releasing John Byers' work, who was um, a folk musician and an activist. She still... I think her last album was pretty recently, actually. Like in the last breach of time in the last couple of years. Yeah, she's still um, alive. I've been kicking. I'm, I'm very yeah. happy for her. Isn't she like Paul Simon, one of those people that started doing lockdown songs where they would upload YouTube videos of them playing tracks? It was very nice. Mm-hmm. I think it was either her or Patti Smith. I think it's more likely that it was Joan Byers, though. That's but cool. I didn't know that. We are, I mean, lockdown did strange things to people. It was all of a sudden everybody had to do something musical. I think the best two were Paul Simon 
playing his guitar every now and yeah. then. And Sophie Ellis Bex's Kitchen Discos, which were just incredible. Oh, I haven't listened to that. So to check it out. Like an Instagram live stream where she would just hold a disco in a kitchen. Brilliant. Nothing better <laughs> than that. Ah, oh, that's cool. And what it is better than is uh, Joan Baez, the debut album, which is going to get really confusing as we have to refer to her album <laughs> and her name at the same time. But Joan Baez, self-titled album released in 1960, uh, producer Maynard Solomon, who would go on to produce a lot of Joan Baez and Bob Dylan-related episodes mm. and pieces and compilations and little bits and pieces later down the line that does seem like he was just trying to cash in on their legacies. But... This is a contemporary folk album from 1960. It's one of the earliest inserts into the book. You are once again here for one of the first hundred in, in the book. So that's Abbey Road for you, and now it's Joan Baez. I'm all about the classics, um, you know. I'm an old classics, soul at yeah. heart. <laughs> like LCD Sound System's new album. <laughs> but as ever, before we get into our discussion, we've got to discuss what Robert Dimry's henchman wrote about this book. So I'm yes, please. A nice swig of coffee. And then I will read out the three paragraphs, which have not been the best in the past few episodes. They kind of just feel a bit indifferent. I mean, the, the worst one's been the Fleetwood Mac Rumors one. This one's a bit better, but... You know, at least it's peaked when the good old Carson was here on the pod, talking about Lord. <laughs> that was a, a joyous episode. One that I don't remember because I was also hungover for that one. <laughs> That's but a through line between all of these recordings. There's a, a fine line between me being ready for these podcasts and me being either hungover or drunk. Um, I, had a, I had a beer on the, the last one. Thankfully, I've got my coffee because I think having a beer at 10.53 in the morning is a little too far. Well, oh, yeah. yeah. A little bit, a little bit. But as far as Joan Byers goes, they wrote... Well, they, Joan Byers didn't write this. Uh, somebody writing about Joan Byers wrote this. Somebody writing on Joan Baez, his album, which is also called Joan Baez, but it's in this book. Joan Baez's Joan Baez's debut album. Joan Baez's Joan Baez's autobiography. That'd be fine. That'd be fun. So, after playing to coffee houses around Boston in the late 1950s, Joan Baez's break came with the 1959 Newport Folk Festival, where the pretty girl with the angelic voice astounded the crowd. And despite the seeming absence of the trademark ideological stance she later became known for, even in the early days politics mattered, Byers opted for a record deal with small label Vanguard, impressed by the decision to release material by folk act The Weavers, despite many of the members being accused of being communists. Hmm. The decision certainly paid off for both Byers and Vanguard. The self-titled debut was still one of the highest-selling solo female folk albums of all time, and saw her (laughs) receive the first of her six gold records, a success even more impressive considering that this was a time when the singles chart governed supreme. She released 17 records through Vanguard, and while she later would become known as Queen, the Bob Dylan's king of folk music, Dylan was in awe of Byers at first. Her name was not connected with Dylan until her third album, on which she first began performing contemporary material. I think that's because of a cover she did, um, which doesn't really have much impact on this episode, but it's a, it's a cover she did of one of Dylan's songs, Oh. Um, and for the life of me, I can't remember which one it was. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't particularly care to be honest. Um, it was definitely a Dylan cover though, and we've got one last paragraph to narrow us out. But my throat's starting to close up, so I'm going to have a coffee. <laughs> I'm very interested to hear, yeah, what he has to say. Mm. Final words. Who, me or Bob Dylan? Bob Dylan. Oh right. When's he going to leave me. this earth? Probably after me. To be honest, 
Like, the man does not stop. If that man at 81 can tour and, like, do dates back to back, I didn't get out of bed until 10. I said, <laughs> This is a crazy thing listening to this music and, and reading up on, on it. You know, we've, we've done an episode on Bob Dylan reading about his autobiography, Chronicles, yeah. and it's like, man, like, every time I hear about the 60s, it doesn't feel like it's been that long ago. It always feels like it's closer than it actually is. And they're like, oh, yeah, people that were in their 20s are now in their 80s. Like, 60 years have passed. <laughs> it's it's, not... It is terrifying. It's um, the, the fact that it doesn't feel like that. I mean, I, I keep thinking the 90s isn't that long ago, but really that's 30 years ago, which is insane. No. But one more paragraph to power on through, and then we can start talking about the album. Um, the debut album from the 20 year old consisted of traditional songs, including several ballads from England and America, particular highlights being Wildwood Flower and House of the Rising Sun, which showcased Bias's vibrant, clear voice. Although her place at the forefront of the protest movement was still around the corner, Bias's strength, compassion, and courage were apparent on this initial release, which did much to revitalize folk music for a new generation. I'd say that's the best written entry we've had so far for the um, little bit of writing that comes with the album notes, um, which is not high bar to pass, but <laughs> it's nice to see it has been reached. Um, Nick, <laughs> what what memories have you got with this album? I always ask this because whenever I have a guest on, I let them choose the album. I don't say you are doing Chumbawamba's Tub Thumper, and we're going to talk about that for an hour. But Joan Byers, must, like you mentioned, must mean quite a lot to you. I've, I have more memories with Thumb Thumpers than, uh, than this album, to be honest. <laughs> oh, no. Well, I know what episode you're on next. Yeah, I'm excited. But, but yeah, no, speaking of John Bats, this album, it's, it's, it's one that I've listened to relatively few times over the years. But I have more of a history with her in general. I completely, completely fell in love with her voice when I first heard Here's to You, the song that was used by... Morricone in the film Sacco and Vanzetti, which is very underrated. And and from that moment on, I was like, who is this woman? What's she like? And I think the fact that, like like the, the lovely writer of the book said, that she's the queen of folk music to Bob Dylan's king, I think that's very a very accurate comparison. Even though they've ended up making, you know, different types of songs over their career, they're remembered for different reasons. Man, I, I just love the vibes. I, I just really, really love folk music, guitar heavy, you know, this this very unique voice. It's not perfect. Uh, she pushes she pushes those high pitches like very strongly. You can hear the voice faltering a little bit, but it had so much humanity to it. I'm I'm someone who's always loved imperfections in art. Um, and I think this album is a great showcase of that, even though it's not necessarily the best album, I think that like half of those tracks being, you know, traditional ballads, they all sound the same. <laughs> when you're listening to it, it's like, is this the same song or are we just going to another? Oh, it's been two songs already since the last one. Oh, okay. And I'm just checking the time. Like, oh, yeah. It's it's not the most memorable per se, but I think especially the first half has some very strong songs. Yes. And I'm very glad you mentioned that it sounds like very raw, it's got imperfections because a lot of these songs were recorded once and that was it, there they go on to the album well, you um, can tell <laughs> you can tell, you can definitely tell um, 
I did have this written down. Uh, she said in the 1983 interview, John Byers, is that they would do the sim, some of these tracks just the once. Um, and it's cheaper. <laughs> it is cheaper, yeah. But does does that add or detract from the overall quality? I think, I mean, obviously we're going to have to discuss the quality itself of the album, which is, as you've just said there, essentially what I was going to say, um, that there are tracks on here that are sounding so similar that if you were to just sit back and listen, you probably wouldn't notice that it's actually moving on to track to track to track. And mm. there's a real sincere quality to that. Mm. Where if you can manage to blur these tracks together, traditional ballads as well, which are not exactly like the most easy to form into a cohesive album. You know, you do a cover here or a cover there, Bias just struck through with essentially an A side and a B side of covers. Um, what, what do you think? I mean, th- there's a lot to be said for perfectionism, you know, mm-hmm. just to move it to film. If, if you look at Stanley Kubrick, you cannot imagine him doing anything just the once. John Byers essentially said, unless a dog ran through the studio and started barking, you'd probably leave it on. Um, what, what do you think that does for this album? Well, you know, I think to, to draw comparisons to films like you just did, you know, kind of Abbey Road, when, when I was here to talk about Abbey Road, that's so well produced, that is like a Kubrick film. This yeah. one, this album, is like watching a 16 millimeter underground film where they could only afford one take <laughs> per, per shot. It's like, this is so expensive. Film is expensive. You cannot really do multiple takes. It's just, you know, going through with it, powering through. And it feels so, I would say, achievable. It, it feels like it's made by a, a, a real person. <laughs> it yes, makes it even more yeah. intimate, you could say. There's, yeah. there's always this intimacy, I think, you know, They've remastered the album, they, you know, trying to improve the sound quality. But the fact is you can still kind of... Like, I would love to listen to this on vinyl because, you know, the record scratches and all of that would add even more of this... You know, it would almost feel like you're not listening to an album, per se. It would feel like you're standing in a crowd in a very dingy bar, you know, dimly lit, uh, but dirty people around, everyone dressed in this 1960s clothing... And then this woman just walks on stage with her guitar and just starts singing. That's how it kind of feels to me. Yeah. Uh, it does overstate's welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad Definitely. you mentioned that. I've listened um, to it three times now. And every time I'm like, yeah, this is so good, like for the first 20 minutes. And it's like, I kind of want to skip to go to the last two songs. <laughs> just because yes. it's like, yeah. there's like this five stretch of like five or six tracks. Or like, like we both said, it's like, I can take it or leave it, you know. I think that's. I think it's a very not not to question the motives of making an album because I, I do think John <laughs> made a, a very good album in the sense of what was accomplishable at the time, what she was yeah. doing, and what she was like. The limitations of a small record company saying go and record an album cannot be overstated, cannot be understated. Mm-hmm. It, it's a very difficult challenge, um, and to come out with so many songs like a forty-four minute album at this time is kind of long for a, a folk musician. To do yeah. that in just one take, essentially just do it, crack it out in an evening or two, is brilliant. It takes me longer to edit these podcasts than it takes for John <laughs> to make a bloody album. Um, it's It has its highs and lows. It, it's certainly a mixed bag, more so than when I listened to it the first time, which was mm-hmm. probably early 2020, when I first started listening mm-hmm. to all the albums in this book. So it's been a couple of years. I've had a bit of distance from it. I think I liked it more then than I do now. Okay. It's interesting that that's happened because usually what happens is I go back and listen to the old album and think, 
well, I must have been huffing paint at the time. I've clearly not rated this correctly. And then it goes up. <laughs> Joan Baez, if anything, has kind of just stayed at that midpoint three-star range. It's like, it's fine. I probably wouldn't listen to this again or want it on vinyl, even though I hate to say it, right? Because I always thought, what a, what a stupid thing to say, but listening to things on records just does sound better. And I'm only saying that because I just got a new record player and I've got like <laughs> speakers behind me. Um, it is unbelievable. It's so, so good. Um, I've never heard music sound better than that. And it's brilliant. I had Leonard Cohen's last album on. Um, you oh, darker, nice. And it just sounded so pure. And I think that's the effect, though, isn't it? It's the if you can get an original print of Joan Baez, for those that like the album, yeah. it'd be brilliant. Yeah. For those that dislike the album, it might sound a bit better. For those ambivalent on it, it's not going to do much. Um, but like you said, there are a couple highs. There are uh, some hefty lows. Um, yeah. I think Silver Dagger is probably the standout, mainly because it's the first track, which is it's a delightful little song. Um, it it is essentially one of the this album as a whole is kind of a testing palette for John Byers. It's it's to enter you into an artist whose range and vocals can be stretched. Mm-hmm. Her talent to just play and sing is definitely seen. It's it's clear on the album that she's got a real talent for it. I just don't think it's adapted as well as it should be to traditional folk songs. Um, you know, you've got something like House of the Rising Sun, which for me is always going to be an animal song. Um, uh-huh. But hearing it in the kind of slower tone and higher pitch just doesn't work for me. Okay. But then on the other hand, you've got something like Fairly Well, which is truly, truly marvellous. It's it's that mixed bag, and I think all of it comes down just to personal taste. This is an album that is completely defined by which songs you like and which songs you don't. Um, I think Baez's voice becomes secondary to that almost, which is a shame because she's got a really good voice. Um it's further expanded on our other albums, but I just think we've got to take into account the fact that this is the only Joan Byers album on the list. And so essentially they're saying this is the <laughs> best representation of her work. And I don't agree with that. I don't think it is. Um, but for me, it's from watching a lot of documentaries as well on you know that era, it does seem like Joan Byers is better known, or rather more importantly known for her activism, her politics, and what she did you know, after Woodstock, after everything that sort of the 60s influence gave her, it's, I'll always think of Joan Baez as a very prominent, important activist. And she was also a very good vocalist. I just don't think the original Joan Baez first album is really the best example of what she can do. I think that a lot of that comes from just the sort of relatively patchy B-side, which is, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like John Riley, Donna Donna, Oh, Donna Donna's last track on the A side, actually. Sorry, but just that yeah. little, a bit of a rut, really. Yeah, it, it, it's unfortunate. I agree. Uh, I can kind of see why it's it's been chosen primarily for its just historical relevance. Yeah, probably. Um, it's hard to balance both of them. I'm not an expert on all of her discography, so I wouldn't know which album would be best in lieu of this one. Yeah. But you know, I, th- I think if someone was like, I, I've never listened to John Baz, I was like, oh, you can you can listen to this, you know, a couple songs, three, four songs, and then can make you listen to Here's to You, and then you're fine. You kind of get the gist. Um, but yeah, I agree. The first part is so solid to me. I actually really like the rendition of House of the Rising Sun. That's yeah. one of my favorite traditional folk ballads, you could say. 
Um, yeah. Because it's so malleable, you can rearrange it in so many different ways. And what's particularly appreciated in this one is that she changed a lot of the lyrics, um, which is something that I found interesting because some of the other tracks in here, they are sung from a male perspective. It's like the yes. man going, yeah. he sees the woman, it's like he's still Virginia, he's like that. Um, but House of the Rising Sun, she changes it to the, the, the poor boys or poor girls. Uh, and she mixes things around, which can... You know, I, I, it's it's also part of the appeal, I think, of, of folk music. It's the fact that it's of the people, for the people, yes. and the people can do whatever they want with it. You can slow it down, you can move the lyrics around, you can make it your own. And I think for better or worse, she does make it her own. Um, but yeah, I, I really like that. Um, even the third one, even like you said, fairly well, 10,000 Miles. It's it's another very, very strong song. Um, I kind of like that some of these, these tracks, you know... Uh, it feels like you're, while you're listening to this, you have uh, Lewin Davis somewhere else in like another room, <laughs> just practicing his guitar or recording something else. Uh, such a fascinating period, 1960s, see, early it, 1960s. It is, uh, the 1960s are a very electric time for music, ironically, considering everybody was prattling on with acoustic guitars. I will yeah. not get my acoustic guitar out not again. <laughs> It's not that type of episode. I'm not going to crack out Mary Hamilton. That's fine. Don't worry about it. Um, I think it's it's very telling for the time because, you know, it'd been about five years. I mean, the, the book itself starts within the wee small hours by Frank Sinatra, and then it explodes from there. And a lot of the early 60s stuff is stuff I would associate with contemporary folk. You've got the birds, you've got mm-hmm. Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen. And I think even by the book standard, there is a, a, a lacking representation, not just of, of gender, but of overall what contemporary folk music does or what it can do and what it did mm-hmm. do. And I think that's why I'm kind of st- stunned a bit by the inclusion of this debut album. I think it's it's really important that Byers' name is on there, but mm-hmm. I don't think this is the right album to do it because there's just... a, a it's, I, I don't want it to sound too rude, but it's like these aren't originals. Anybody could do this. No, not not anybody. But there's stuff like you know, John Riley, Little Moses, Rake and Rambling Boy, which just kind of drag it down when you've got stuff like El Prezo Numero Nueve, Mary Hamilton, Little yeah. Moses. These are good tracks. These are really well assembled. And like you said, one of the most important parts of actually assembling a traditional folk album is sort of the, the, the set list of how it goes through, and I think it's one of the most important albums for that, is where do you define these songs and where do you go? It's a very <laughs> experimental album. It's a very important piece on the grounds of its history, on the grounds of its, you know, this is the first time somebody that has become a major artist has gone for an independent record label and stuck with them. You don't get that much anymore because, you know, Sony and UMC have a fucking monopoly the same way Ticketmaster do. <laughs> but it's it's really quite a statement, and I think that says more more about Joan Baez as a person than it does her album. Is that she was very happy to stick with an independent label that would support her beliefs, and I think just to you know she stuck with them for that long. But there are better examples down the line. I can't name any off the top of my head because that would spoil the end of the episode as to what I'm going to to be saying about a replacement album if there is one. Um, but it's it is a it is a collection of nice songs. I think the the flow of it is very nice. It's very soothing, but sometimes it just kind of it feels a bit distant. It feels a bit disconnected. It feels as if okay, well we've heard this before. It's nothing special. 
bit routine. Now we're just going through it again and again and again, where it's warbling tones, acoustic guitar, works for the first few songs, has a bit of a dip when you realise that it's nothing all that incredible. And then by the end of it, it's like, oh, thank God, it's coming to close. You kind of just snap back in. It's like, oh, right, okay, this is what's happening. Um, there are better tracks as well, you know. I think the to, to speak of House of the Rising Sun, obviously I wasn't the biggest fan of it, but there is a blunt tone to it that I do appreciate. It's a very mm-hmm. nice swerve on the song, as you mentioned, where it's from the perspective, it's the change of lyrics, it's the a little changes like that make a lot of difference, as Bias would often find when she was doing other covers. I think it was a Bring It Back Home she did a Bob Dylan, which is just mm-hmm. delightful. I think that was her first EP as well. Um, but then you've got a nice run at the end of Mary Hamilton, Henry Martin, El Preso Nuevo, Numero Nueve. My, I don't know if that's what language that is. I'm Spanish. Not really sure. <laughs> Spanish, yeah, I thought so. But my Spanish is not good. Um, been to Spain a few times, but never picked up any of the lingo because everybody I spoke to in Spain was just an English bloke called like <laughs> Daz. But you found each other. I did. I did. Good old Benny Dom. <laughs> what a horrible place. But yes, I think as far as the sort of overall nature of this album goes, I think it's more remembered for the history, the legacy. And it's a very important history and a very important legacy. I just think it overwhelms the music a bit. And from my perspective, I think it's... If we're going to essentially update the list, we're here to sort of sift through what is and what is not needed on this list. We need to start thinking about contemporary musicians that have had this much or more artistic influence. And I think that's kind of why I'm on the fence about keeping it on the list because <laughs> Joan Byers for me, can be seen in a lot of other artists. Not that they're inspired by her, but that they're doing similar things. They're being really creative, really broad with independent labels. And I just think it's it's about high time we added those to the list in place of John Byers, so I kind of have given it away before we spoke about the legacy of this album, because there is a legacy to this album, but just prepare yourselves, because that legacy is meaningless to me it's Aww. not meaningless, but obviously like like the introduction said um, one of the highest grossing female folk musicians of her time, which it's is impressive. In- impressive once you remove, I mean is it is impressive once you remove the very specific genre it's the highest selling okay great, female, yeah great folk contemporary musician of her time. It's like, that's a lot of variables. I wonder where she'd stand against like the rest of them. But I think, you know, it's it's still an influential status to have. I, just, I think it's been overblown by the book. Um, you know, Pet Shop Boys sold albums, you know. It doesn't mean they're <laughs> uh, to be, That's a bad example. Pet Shop Boys are brilliant. Um, but there is something to the scope of her legacy. And I was wondering what that meant to you, because obviously you, you said she was a very important figure to you. I was wondering what you meant by that i i, I think especially over over time how sing, singing has evolved especially female singers have become more and more prominent and uh, household names you know there's always this attempt to to make everything sound sexy and look sexy and i think there is a simplicity to john baez the way also she presents herself if you see her on stage um, in, in archival footage at the time, you know, she's very much a gorgeous woman, but also, you know, she belonged to the EP era and she belonged with people who had this very, very unique sounds, these voices that were just, you know, a bit croaky, a bit like, oh, you, you can hear a bit of struggling as well. They're not professionally trained per se. And I think that's the type of legacy that they really appreciate. 
Um, if I have to make a cinematic comparison with her, I would say that John Bass is for folk singing what Agnes Varda was for the French New Wave. She came before a lot of the big names. What she did was used and improved upon by their male contemporaries. She stuck around throughout the time, and she was never as big as any of them. Um, Maybe fairly so, maybe unfairly so. But I love me some Agnes Varda, and I think maybe for the same reason, for this weird comparison, I kind of love John Bass. Um, But yeah, this is probably not the album I would pick (laughs) (laughs) as well to have her. I I would still keep her on the list. I always think like with this list of the top 1,000, like be it music, games, paintings, films, It, there always has to be this nice balance between old and new, and I think yeah. I give, I give, yeah, I, I think she kind of deserves it. Maybe not necessarily for this album, but I, I would still keep her personally. I know yeah. for a fact this some like obviously that kind of leads us on to removing her from the list, albeit temporarily, because I know for a fact that she will be back on the list because I can't imagine CeeLo Green's The Love Machine is going to stick around for much longer. <laughs> but there are certain. It's like you said, it's striking the balance between old and new. And Joan Baez is a clearly influential musician. Don't get me wrong, because for the past half hour, it, it makes me sound like I hate Joan Baez. <laughs> She's a brilliant artist, <laughs> fantastic voice. I just don't think her debut album is where people should define her. Mm-hmm. She went on and did some really good albums in like the mid-60s, the mid-70s, which isn't too Damn. far after the release of this debut album. You've got stuff like, you know, she she did a cover album of Bob Dylan's songs, which I'm not saying should be on the list, because that, that's, that's a whole wormhole of problems. But you've got stuff like One Day at a Time, you've got stuff like Diamonds and Rust, you've got Honest Lullaby, you've got Whistle Down the Wind, which she released in 2018. She's an active artist that has continued to make great music. And the fact that the list itself is just kind of like, well, there's a debut, go and listen to that, that'll do, is (laughs) rather telling of how much of her discography they've listened to. But at the same time, it is her most popular album. It is for a reason. I just, if, if the point of a list this big is to get to grips with the artist, I don't think saying that scratching the tip of the iceberg is manageable. I think you should go mm-hmm. deeper. I think you should always go deeper. So for now, I think for me, Joan Baez is going on hold until I've decided which album to put on. Because there is a there's no chance she's not on this list. She probably is one of the most important artists of her time. She probably still is an important artist as well. It's just that not many people are now listening to her if any any of the ratings on rating music are to go by. Her last three mm-hmm. albums recorded a respective 94, 93, 98 ratings. So not too many compared to the 1,089 that listened to her debut. Yeah. It's a real downhill slope. But to be fair, the same can be said for like Johnny Cash, Bob Dylan. There are people that yeah. aren't listening to their unearthed records where, you know, they're not they're not gone, but they're not really around either. Which is a shame because it's it's those albums that really get to grips with what they mean as an artist. I've no doubt that Joan Baez, something like Blowing Away or Dark Chords on a Big Guitar is going to be something that really unlocks the key to her voice and her instrumental abilities. Just the same as Johnny Cash. His stuff that he released in like the mid-80s when he was actively trying to be released from his record label because they just didn't care. Mm-hmm. Genuinely some of the best stuff he's done. Like Johnny ninety nine is a fantastic album, but nobody's heard it because it was kind of buried. I haven't got to go back and sort of listen to it. 
it's it's one of those things, and I think it's the, the whole point of this list should not just be to engage somebody with a musician they may not be familiar with, but with the, the actual best work, the most interesting thing they've done. And for the, that fact alone, I don't think Joan Baez's debut is the most interesting thing she's done. Mm-hmm. There has got to be something more down there, deeper in that discography that has got to be better than this. I'm not saying that as a slight to the the debut because the debut is a good album. It's solid. It needs to be listened to. It is a classic for a reason. Whether or not it is in line with what this list says it does is completely different. I don't think it's the best representation of the artist, and I don't think it's even the best way to get into John Byers. I think something else is in there. I'm I'm not going to make a comment on what I think it is yet, because I do want to save that for when I actually put her back on the list, but she's on ice <laughs> for now, because I do have a replacement album. Um, but before we get to that, you'll have to stick around to listen to that. Um, what is the best track on this album? I'm. Uh, I mean, you mentioned earlier "Silver Dagger," and that's a great mm. way to start. It is. It is. But, uh, I really love "Fairly Well," man. I'll probably go for "Fairly Well." Fairly well. Yeah. So we yeah. picked the same favorite then. Okay. <laughs> um, which there is rare. Go. We never usually do that. Um, yeah, I think fairly well. I think more because what what surrounds it as well is very strong. I think the A side is mm-hmm. very strong on this, but fairly well is a wonderful piece. It's a really nice cover, and it's kind of I don't know. In my mind, there's always the stigma of it. Just it's a really nice cover, and then cover lingers, and it's like, well, how is she mm. going to sound when she does something original? What is like the next step? And I think cover art is a really important piece of music. I think to, it's to a stepping stone. Do it. It's a stepping stone. I just don't think you should define your career as a cover. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, every song gets covered these days, but it's, you know, there are better covers out there of House of the Rising Sun, for instance, such as The Animals. That's true, um, yeah, yeah. No, but Fairly Well, I think, is definitely her, not her peak, but for this album, is definitely the standout moment because there is a nice blend of her instrumental abilities on the acoustic guitar as well as her voice. Yeah, and and I think especially this the first half is very well balanced in terms of you know um, me- melodic melancholic tunes with yeah. you know more upbeat ones. Um, I mean, up, upbeat in the in the range of John Bass singing, um, but still you know it goes from some from a slow tempo to a faster tempo, which is lacking in the second half. The second half they all sound the same because of that. If if you keep changing it up. Like, you go from Silver Dagger to East Virginia to Fairly Well and then House of the Rising Sun. Like, they're all relatively different songs, and it's high and low, high and low, up and down, up and down. So that also adds this nice extra punch once I actually get to this third track. It's like, ooh, yeah, okay, yeah, we're picking things up a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's a great one. I don't, I don't think we can understate the sort of... I mean, Fairly Well, for instance, was written in the 1700s. To have a contemporary spin on that is incredible. And I think it's really resounding. I just think, you know, it needs to be something more. I, mm-hmm. I, it's, when I was reading up on this, it was... Um, this album did not go gold until she released her next album. And then everybody <laughs> went back and bought the first one. It's like, oh, right, okay. So really, this isn't the, the booming success it was initially going to be until she released another work. Um, which is, you know, fair enough. I mean... People have reprisal albums all the time where they just boost them into the charts. I'm, I'm pretty sure yeah. if you check the top 40 right now, Elton John's greatest hits would be there still. It doesn't matter what the man does, it's always going to be there. I do think there is something to be said for 
how successful or remembered this album would be had it not been for the bolster and sales that it got after the second album release, which was John Byers Volume 2. I think it was just the fact of, oh, shit, I've not listened to Volume 1, better go out and get that. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, well done. That's the completionist in people. <laughs> it did go gold before it what, hit the Billboard 200, but if, as the insert says, chart success is so important for how gold albums are remembered, it doesn't add up if you're saying that, oh, this is an album that was like gold six times over, it, it was a monumental piece, it was like reliant on the singles charts, and then mm-hmm. saying, oh, it didn't actually chart the Billboard 200s, there's a, a, a bit of a misfire there. Yeah. But who am I to judge? Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, it. I mean, it peaked at number 15, and then it spent over two years in the charts, so that is very impressive. impressive. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's the fact that it came a lot a lot longer afterwards. I mean, artistically, you know, you, you think of albums and how quickly they released them in sort of the 60s and 70s. You know, you've got Bob Dylan doing one or two every year. How <laughs> how much of a lifespan does that album have on the mind of an artist where it's kind of like, oh, I'm already on my third project by the time this one's mm-hmm. finished? True. It's, it's interesting to see that. But it does come at a time where I'm going to replace John Byers' debut album. Not permanently. I don't think it'll make a return to the list, but I do think it will have a John Byers album on there somewhere. But I'm going to replace it with what I think is essentially as important a contemporary album as John Byers' debut work. I mean, if you look at the past sort of 60, 70 years, contemporary folks' popularity is now just chamber pop. <laughs> Everybody does chamber pop, a rock pop, this sort of atmospheric piece that makes you stay away from real pop, which mm-hmm. is not good. Um, real pop is just boring so to move it back to a subgenre is just nice and I think the, the best example of that in the past 20 years is Sloppy Jane's Madison which hmm. is incredible they recorded it, it's, it's everything about Joan Baez's work that I find striking and influential but bigger, better and sounds better crucially you know, Joan Baez recording this one track, one go away it goes in four days Sloppy Jane's Madison, which is led by Haley Dahl, is three weeks recording from 3pm until dawn in a cave with orchestras, mm. with instrumentals, with just a big vibrancy that has this beautiful echoed effect. And it's it's not often you can say an artist is doing something interesting and successful. Um, but with Madison, I think it's possibly one of the most important albums of the past 10 years from the perspective of where they've recorded it, why they've done that, what these songs mean, and the fact that again, it's it's that independent label link. Sloppy Jane's album was released by the record label that Phoebe Bridges owns, who did Punisher and um, the one with the ghost on the front that I can't remember the name of. <laughs> um, it's nice to see that concept albums can still find a home, especially when chamber pop is growing in dominance and popularity, and especially when it's a really good album. It's just quality. Um, <laughs> Two years of touring caves to find the right one. Three weeks of getting the equipment down there to record an album and then mixing it and processing it. This is a clear example of a very interesting artist. And I think for the sake of updating a list to the modern standards, Mm -hmm. this is an album that needs to be on there because I do thoroughly believe that this is an album that will last the test of time, essentially. It's, you know, Joan, Joan Baez's debut didn't quite do that for me, but I think Madison will, through just the, the, the history of it, the history that will come from it, the fact that you can pop down to a cave and record something. The only other mm-hmm. person I think 
who did that was Jarvis Cocker, but his was like an open cave. He didn't plan too much. He <laughs> cave and sat down. Yeah. Um, it's it's rather telling that um, the performers played in the cave, but the engineers were 90 feet above ground recording it all um, because the cave was that humid that it would have just ruined the equipment. And I think it's Jesus. little details like that show a real, not just integrity, but a, an ability to adapt to situations that shouldn't have music in them. I think creating music in spaces that aren't creative, really, such as the middle of a cave, is just a great... It's a great example for what we can now do with music. I think to to represent that and to have that on the list in place of someone that did it, you know, in a popular way, but in a lesser so state, you know, recording a track once and slapping on a record is not as impressive as going into a cave for three weeks and recording an album. Um, But that is the progress of time. And we need to to note that on the list. We need to note that progress and passing of time with experimental, interesting and very, very good albums like Madison. Yeah, I'd love to check it out. I've never heard of yeah, it. It was so good, I got it on vinyl. That's that's wow. that's where I'm at with it. It's a seal of approval. <laughs> I heard it, I heard it live in Manchester when I went to see Phoebe Bridges, and um, unbelievable, like sincerely, one of the best things I've ever heard in a long time. Wow. Um, brilliant, really amazing. But I suppose that's all of us. That's that's all we've got to say on War Joan Byers, which is delightful because it means this episode is really short and I can edit it in no time at all um, where can people I, find you? I wanted to say one last thing actually yeah. um, if I were Perfect. to replace this album <laughs> it's a Ooh, full length because um, I was thinking like, I'd, I'd like to keep John Baez yeah. again like kind of something else that she's done and of the sound of the that. albums of the albums that I've listened to I would actually yeah. say I don't know if it's a cop out or anything but the soundtrack to Sacro Vanzetti she contributed oh. to it with Morricone, and it's probably you know it's the Morricone touch that does a lot of the uh, lifting in that in that album in terms of quality. But she has multiple songs on the soundtrack. It's not just "Ears to You." There's there's a, a couple ballads that she took um, inspiration from old sonnets from the 19th century. Like that's something that I find very fascinating about her is that she's very well read, um, yeah. has strong interest in in history and and literature and poetry, which is kind of something that I think. All of the great artists do. They're not necessarily the most well versed in their own. Uh, how do you even say it? Like in their own field. <laughs> like the yeah, singers, no, I, the yeah. best singers are not experts about every single album ever made, but they're experts in like I don't know, uh, psychology and uh, yeah, and uh, metaphysical. Yes, yes. Um, and I think the soundtrack to Sacco and Vanzetti, especially because when you look for John Baez, the first song that comes up easier to you. I want to say that's probably like for ninety percent of the people nowadays they've heard it either from another movie they've probably heard it I don't know playing the Metal Gear Solid Five games they both have it like you know it, it keeps popping up it's an enduring song and I think that's a just that song alone is a great showcase but also having the actual ballad of Sacco Vanzetti in there split up in multiple parts you know it it shows her vocal range it shows also her activism because you know that that's a true story the movie is based on um of these two men that were illegal um like you know they were arrested with prejudice and they were sentenced to death they tried their best to escape the people rallied up but they died unfortunately it do be like that so i i think it's it's a great showcase because yeah john buys the album Lots of classics, lots of folk ballads, lots of even religious tunes, but it lacks that extra, you know, 
that extra spicy political vibe that defined their career as well. Absolutely. So before people start sending us anthrax in the post, just remember that we will have a Joan Baez album on the list. I promise you that. <laughs> because there, there, there is something to be said for a legacy. I just, again, it's it's nice to dive a little deeper. It's nice to get something else in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not yet listened to. Um, but no, I think that rounds it out nicely with the recommendation of a soundtrack that she was included on, um, as opposed to what is essentially just a cover album. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I'm not slating Joan Baez. She will be on the list. Please do not send me any more anthrax in the post. Seventy-year-old John Baez fans are very upset right now. How dare you? Dylan fans, they're insane. Um, where where <laughs> can people find you, God forbid, on on the old internet? Uh, thankfully, Twitter seems to be still alive and kicking, so I'm still on Twitter and also Instagram at NikiGran97, and there you can find everything that I do. We know links to my YouTube videos, um, links to the Death of Adaptation podcast that I host, and you off, more often than not, you're on it, which is always a delight. And we actually just recorded an episode on Bob Dylan talking about Chronicles and Don't Look Back a little bit as well on uh, on I'm Not There. So, you know, if you love Bob Dylan and, and and you love this podcast, be sure to tune into that conversation because it's hella fun. Wonderful stuff. And you can find me as ever on Twitter, Letterboxd and a couple of other places at Ewangledo, E-W-A-N-G-L-E-A-D-O-W <laughs> because my name is so hard to spell, um, apparently. <laughs> I might just change it. I'm not decided. I might just change my name to John Byers, actually. That might that might boost the analytics a bit. But you can get my work on Cut Following, Clap a Daily Star, uh, um, other places as well, Newcastle World. Um, just Google my name. Stuff comes up. A lot of Wikipedia <laughs> links these days. But hey, yeah. I'm, I'm a credible source on the internet, apparently. Anyways, I'll leave you with that horrible idea that the fact that I'm a, a listed source of Bob Dylan article. <laughs> Enjoy your weekend, weekday, day, morning, afternoon, night. I don't really care. Enjoy yourselves. Goodbye. <laughs>